Um, but the title for this morning is Because He Died, We Face Conviction But Not Condemnation. There's a very fine line between those two words, and we'll talk about that in a second. But our goal as a church for Lent is not necessarily to, you know, have multiple services throughout the week and, and, you know, follow the Ash Wednesday pattern and all those kind of things, but really to let it be a time where we look to God's word in a little bit of a different way than we typically do and consider what Christ has done for us. So what you typically see from the pulpit is a verse by verse um, walking through an entire book of scripture, right? We're not going to do that for these um, seven weeks um, ending in Easter here. We're going to be taking um, a more topical approach. If you know the difference between topical preaching or expository preaching, expository preaching is at least what we shoot for on a weekly basis, is to say, here's what God's word says, and let's understand what he's said to us. Um, we believe that should be your regular diet of sermon intake on, on the normal everyday Sunday. Um, and yet there's not necessarily uh, anything wrong with preaching topically here and there. Um, particularly as we look at Christ on the cross for us, and um, we're taking a little bit more of a theological approach with this. So we'll have a text every week that we launch out of, but it's not going to necessarily be a full-on exposition of that particular verse. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? And that's our goal for today. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, and just starting by reading verse 7. So if you want to open up your Bibles and follow along with me there, we'll read just that one verse to start us off. Um, but this will be a Sunday where um, it would be uh, my joy to see you with your Bibles in your laps, turning pages as we go through a couple of different passages in the New Testament as well. So we want to open up to Genesis chapter 3 now. This is the most important thing we're going to do on any given Sunday, any worship service, is to look at God's Word. Um, Genesis is a book in the Bible. It's towards the beginning. Pretty should be pretty easy to find. Um, and chapter 3 is a familiar chapter to many of us, I'm sure. Um, this is where we see the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where we see the answer to the question of why is the world so messed up right now? Any question that involves why do wrong, why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why are there disasters? It all comes down to this chapter in the Bible. So very important. We'll go ahead and read just verse 7, and then we'll ask the Lord for his help. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word, for the power that lies in it, the authority um, that exists there to teach us, to build us up, to correct us, um, to comfort us, to encourage us. There's so much that we have to be found in your word, Lord. And this morning, I pray that your spirit would indeed be teaching and applying the truth of your word to us as we consider this matter of conviction. Not a very popular topic, Lord. It's not a very comfortable one either. I pray that you'd give us grace as we hear, um, as we um, ponder these things in our hearts, Lord. May you be glorified. May we see Christ more fully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, our series is called Because He Died. And we're going to look at seven different exchanges of things that happened because Christ died for us. 
So the, the subtitle for this week particularly is that we have, we, we face, oh, where is it? Did it go away? Kevin, can you get that slide back up for us? I, I think maybe just uh, the, the screen slept or something. Thank you. So because Christ died, we face conviction, but not condemnation. And so it's going to be very important for us to grasp those words as we go. Um, but first we want to ask, why Genesis 3-7? What is going on in Genesis 3? We already said that this is where the fall of mankind happens. What action was the fall of mankind? What happened? Feel free to answer any. Yeah, a very simple sounding thing, right? Can you imagine going to the grocery store and as you're looking through perhaps the apples or the bananas or something and you just say, boy, I'd really like to just go ahead and take one of these and taste it. Some people do that actually, don't they? That's kind of strange. I hope it's not you. If it is, then you'll have to explain to me your logic with that, right? (laughs) But if you were to go to the grocery store and just simply pick up a piece of fruit and start eating it, what would you expect to happen? Would you expect the world to literally fall down around you for everything to go completely wrong because you picked up a banana and Aldi as you were shopping and took a bite? Well, maybe. I, I, I found that people at Aldi particularly are very kind and, and may come over and say, sir, I don't know if you know this, but you have to pay for the food that you eat um, before you eat it. Uh, please don't do that. They most likely will let you continue shopping. It's a very small offense, right? We've seen far greater crimes than eating a piece of fruit, But there's a difference between grabbing a banana in a line at Aldi and taking a bite and actually disobeying God. So perhaps you're familiar with this story. God puts Adam and Eve in a garden at the beginning. They're the first humans. And the one thing they are told not to do, the only law that there is, is that they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And it even comes with a greater blessing before it. You can eat from any of the trees. It wasn't as if that was the only one and they're like, okay, we got to just sit here and starve until we finally give them to temptation. There was a bounty of wonderful fruit for them to eat and they chose to disobey God. Why? What outside force came in? Yeah, a serpent came in. Right? And we believe that Revelation shows us that this serpent in Genesis 3 is in fact the devil himself, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, who comes in and, and basically awakens a temptation in the hearts of Adam and Eve to eat from the tree, and they do. He says, you will not surely die. God knows that once you eat from it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And what happens in our verse today, it says, the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. Did they become naked in that moment? No, they just realized it. They knew that they were. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But the phrase, the eyes of both were opened, is where we want to land today as we think about what conviction is. Today we're saying that because Christ died for his people, conviction remains, but condemnation is gone. Now think about Adam and Eve in this moment where their eyes are open. And we're not talking physically here, right? It wasn't as if they were walking around with their eyes closed the entire time and then suddenly, oh wow, I can see everything. We're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually, right? Spiritually, their eyes were open, they realized something. And that thing was directly 
tied to the fact that they have disobeyed God. They've gone against what he has said. And sin, that breaking of God's law, rebelling against him, has made a promise to them that it is not fulfilled, has it? Excuse me. So I want to ask you a weird question. And I was, I was wondering whether I should ask this to you, but do you floss every day? Or regularly? I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up because I don't, I don't want any of us who perhaps might feel like we don't do it enough to, to feel left out, of course. But, but I was hit with this notion just last night, actually, that, that, boy, you know, every time you go to the dentist, what's that terrible question that they ask? You know, while they're picking at your teeth and, you know, blood and there's saliva going everywhere. It's just a terrible experience. And they say, have you been flossing lately? And it's like, can't you tell the answer to that question? I clearly have not been flossing very much as how difficult a time you're having getting in between my teeth right now. Well, I I looked online. So if you want to feel a little bit better about how much you floss, only 30% of Americans actually floss regularly. And that's not even necessarily like daily. That's just a a regular sense, like every Tuesday or maybe three times a week or whatever that might be. It's something that we know we ought to do, but who really has time for flossing in the morning anyway? Now, the truth is, is that if you floss, it isn't a painful, bloody experience every single time, is it? Right? Pretty soon your gums and your teeth get acclimated to the idea, and you can do it rather quickly. You can, you can deal with it um, much easier than you would the first time, or certainly if you haven't for so long, and your dental hygienist is flossing your teeth um, in that painful experience that we mentioned earlier. When we, com- when we come to the idea of conviction, and particularly what we're talking about today is conviction of sin, it's something that I think the church, the capital C church, sort of puts off to the side as far as dealing with. We treat it like we're basically looking at it like how we look at flossing, right? You know, you brush your teeth, right? You, you brush your teeth hopefully every day, hopefully twice or maybe even three times a day. It's something that we all know we ought to do. Flossing is, is that sort of extra thing. But brushing our teeth is sort of like how we go about our Christian lives, just making sure, you know, I made it to church, I, I did my devotional time, I spent time in prayer. But when it comes to dealing with conviction of sin, It's something that perhaps we only deal with when we realize that there's some serious food stuck in our teeth. We realize there's a serious problem, that there is, in fact, sin in our lives, and our eyes are open to that sin, and we realize it because it's right there in front of us, and it's unmistakable. Where was God when Adam and Eve fell in the garden? Was he there? Is he everywhere all the time? Sure. He was there. But at the same time, what we see in verse 8 is they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So yes, we believe theologically God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. And yet there's also this sense that there is the 
a more a fuller experience of the presence of God, right? Uh, particularly, you know, you see things like Acts chapter 2, for instance, is the one that pops into my head, um, that you see the coming of the Holy Spirit. Or you see in Jesus' baptism, a voice, the heavens open and the, a voice comes from heaven and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. There are times where God's presence is more fully felt and more realized by humanity because of his actions, because of what he's doing. But in this moment of temptation, their eyes were closed to the actual problem they were facing, to the temptation, to what would happen to them. And then their eyes are open once it's already happened. And the thing that they're afraid of is what is God going to do? Do you remember what God said before this? The day you eat of it, you will surely regret it, feel bad about it. Wish you hadn't done it. No, you will die. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There was this fear of condemnation that would come because they had broken God's really one and only law that he had given them at that time. Don't eat from that tree. Adam and Eve's response to their, their eyes opening to eating the fruit reveals the terrible situation they were in before the Lord. And that when they heard that the Lord was near... They had to hide themselves. Conviction for Adam and Eve, that eye-opening experience to their sin and realizing what it really was, led to a, an overwhelming fear of condemnation. When God finds us, we will surely die. This is why they hid. This is why they in such a humorous way, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then it says again in verse 8 that they hid themselves um, in the trees, right? In the garden. Where does it say? Yeah, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They made themselves camouflage and then went and hid. Can you hide from the Lord? Can your sin be hidden from the Lord? And yet, when all you have in response to conviction is a fear of condemnation, the only thing you can do is try to hide. Think about the book of Revelation when God's judgment is coming down and you see verses such as the people saying, looking to the hills and saying, hills, fall on us. I'd rather face an avalanche than the judgment of God. This is what Adam and Eve were facing. Condemnation, destruction, death the punishment for what they did. And so their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. They realized that what they had done was painfully obvious to each other, to the serpent, to the rest of creation, and more importantly, to God. Did the promise of the serpent come true? You will be like God, knowing good and evil? Well, not in the way that he framed it for sure, right? But their eyes were opened. And they realized what sin really was. Conviction filled their hearts, and they were sure that condemnation was coming. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in a sermon regarding conviction of sin, that if the Christian message has never made you feel worse than you were before you first heard it, you've never really heard it. Hear that again. If the Christian message, that is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has never made you feel worse than you were before you first heard it, then you've never really heard it. If you've never felt conviction for your sin, then you've never realized the gift of God in Jesus Christ. And for Christians today, who we might be tempted to think, hey, I'll deal with conviction of sin about as frequently as I floss my teeth, 
we're missing a key component to our Christian life. The, the importance of self-examination and realizing that, yeah, I'm in a different relationship now with God, but there's still actual sin that I need to deal with. So what do we need to do? What is it that God's word calls us to? We need to walk with our eyes open to our sin and run to God when conviction comes. But do we do that? Do we run to God when we are faced with the reality of our sin? So often we do not. We know how God responded to Adam and Eve. There was a curse that came on the earth that, that was brought by their sin. But what's interesting in verse 8 is that God still came in the coolness of the day. He still came to the garden. He did not leave them there, though they had in their hearts run away from him. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If conviction is our eyes opening spiritually to the sinful problem that we still have, even as believers, though we've been forgiven, though we've been made new, we still have a struggle with sin. If conviction is the eyes, our, the eyes of our hearts opening to the reality of that, it's important for us to base the way that we look at our sin on the fact that God himself has had an even clearer view of your sin than you ever have that everything is naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. And this is, of course, what happens with Adam and Eve, right? God comes in and says, where are you? Which is such a wonderful question, is it not? God actually asks them, where are you? Not, all right, get over here. Let's deal with this. Gives them a time to do what they ought to have done. Yeah, they were hopeless. They had no reason to think that God was going to change his mind or offer a way out. All they knew was that if we do this, we die, but then we were tempted, and so we did it, and now we're going to face God, and he's told us that we're going to die in the day that we do it. But God still says, where are you? And he still comes to them and asks, what happened? What is this that you've done? So many great questions happen in Genesis chapter 3 that show us how we ought to see God in the midst of our conviction of sin. Well, how do I feel conviction of sin? Do Christians even face conviction of sin? Because when we talk about it theologically, we're talking first and foremost about conversion. When you came to faith in Christ and you were faced with the reality of your sin, that Jesus, who died on that cross, died absorbing the wrath of God that you deserve. If you believed the truth that Christ died for you and rose so that you could have newness of life, be forgiven and be made new, then it started with the conviction of the truth of that. That when the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, your convicted heart said, yup, me too. And you feel the weight, not just of a general idea that, oh, all have sinned. And so, you know, it's not really a big deal because everyone's done it. But rather, true conviction says, I have done it. You say with Paul, I am the chief of all sinners. Not because you think that you've necessarily done everything far worse than anybody else has, but you have a clear view. Your eyes are open to what your sin really is. Conviction opens our eyes. Does it open the eyes of the Christian? Should the Christian move on from the point of salvation and say, well, 
I may sin in the future, but I don't really need to deal with my sin anymore because the sin's been dealt with at the cross. Do I need to face it for what it really is? Do my eyes truly need to be open? Or can I live my Christian life sort of like this, just sort of walking through? And as I trip and as I stumble, I just say, all right, well, God's forgiven me, God's forgiven me, God's forgiven me, God's forgiven me. But I'm not going to deal with whatever that is. Is that how we should handle our sin? I think you can assume that my answer is going to be no. We shouldn't do that. We ought to embrace the conviction of our sin even today, even in our new state in Christ. You know, we say theologically that when I've put my faith in Christ, when he has made me new, I've been saved from the penalty of sin, right? Because he died, condemnation is far off from me. But he is saving me from the power of sin. There is this action where God is progressively moving me, the Bible says, from one degree of glory to the next, making me... uh, less like I was and more like I ought to be, such that we can say things like, I'm not what I should be, but praise God, I am not what I used to be. And conviction comes in to convince us of our sin, to expose that sin to us so that we can deal with it before the Lord. But we don't want to do that. We know that in Scripture we see things like in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? How can I know that I'm in Christ? One of the best places to look, and perhaps the first place I should look, is to look at my sin and say, is there a difference the way I deal with my sin today as I did before I knew Christ? Do I hate my sin or... Do I just say, ah, it's not a big deal. I'm forgiven anyway. Why would the Lord want us to examine ourselves without himself being involved in leading that examination, being a part of it? Not to condemn, but to bring conviction that draws us nearer to him. Paul gives us reason to believe that we still have indwelling sin, as John Owen put it in Romans 7.21. He says, I find it to be a law that when I do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Sin is not something that is far away from the heart of people, even from the hearts of believers. Sin is close at hand. If you look at Romans 7, and you, it's a great chapter to study to understand the struggle with sin of a believer, because he makes it very clear. He's not talking about his past life before he knew Jesus. People who don't know Christ don't struggle with sin. And they might realize what it is. They might might not like it. They might make them uncomfortable. But they don't have that motivation of saying, I want to know Christ more and the sin is in the way. I need to get rid of it. This is his whole whole complaint in Romans chapter 7. Is that I want to do what is right. I want to walk more faithfully. But evil lies close at hand. So John Owen, in his book, Indwelling Sin and Believers, says the soul is the home of this law of sin. It dwells there and is no wanderer. Wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do and in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home within them. A dangerous companion goes with you everywhere you go, even to church. Can you believe it? The place where you're holy and sanctified and perfect, where we put on the face and we say, everything's okay, I'm fine, I'm walking with the Lord. I don't need prayer. I don't need to go to the prayer meeting. I don't need to go to the Bible study. I don't, need, I don't need you to even talk to me right now. 
a dangerous companion lies in our hearts. So are your eyes open to that? Do you realize the reality that we not only face temptation out there in the world, but we bring it with us? We bring, even as Paul says, a law within us that we submit to, to some degree, even in Christ, thinking it's not that big of a deal. The reason we can't face conviction the right way or deal with it as we ought to and and run to God in the cool of the day is because we are indeed always running, because we fear condemnation. Perhaps we ignore sin out of fear or just out of carelessness. If Christ is not central to our lives, sin is not going to be a big deal, particularly sin that people don't even see. When Paul calls us to examine ourselves, we say, okay, well, that can be for people who have done really terrible things and they got to get their life straightened out, but nobody sees my sin. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal, particularly when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. So this great theological work that I, re- that I uh, refer to so often, the Jesus Storybook Bible, in, the, in the, uh, the chapter dealing with the book of Isaiah, God writes to his people um, through Isaiah and simplified for children, and it says, you've always been running from me. You've always been running from me. Not just sometimes, But the inclination of our hearts apart from Christ is a continual race away from him as far as we can go, as fast as we can make it. If the goal of our spiritual life in Christ is to deny ourselves and to follow him, it'll be hard to do so if we don't deal with our sin. If we don't deal with that thing that is making us want to run away, that makes us put on the camouflage and then go hide behind the trees. When we continue to run from him because of sin that lives in us. We're in fact submitting to the power of sin that still holds sway in our lives. Again, when we put our faith in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says. In the process, God is saving us from the power of sin. So we still have to deal with that power, right? It's still an issue that we have to face. It's not something that we can leave behind and say, oh, I'm not going to go to hell, so it's all okay. So why, why, what is it about Christ's death that changes this for us? What is it about Christ's death that makes us stop running away from him and might make us run to him, even run to him at the cross in our minds to think that he who died in my place hung on a cross and bled and suffered and that that wasn't even the worst of what was actually going on. That in Christ becoming a substitute, he was absorbing the wrath of God. Not just the anger of mankind, but the wrath of God against all my sin. How is it that that changes things? And for that, I'd encourage you to go to John 16 with me. Because not only does Christ come and change us, but he also comes and lives inside of us. He takes up residence in our heart right where that law is, that law that Paul finds within himself that he wants to do what is right, but evil lies close at hand. And so becoming a Christian is really embracing a war that has begun when the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of your hearts. All right, are you to John 16 yet? I had a bookmark that whole time and I just totally ignored the bookmark. 
John chapter 16. Look at verse 7 with me, please. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, that is, he was talking about his um, going to the cross and dying for those three days. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to go die on the cross and I'm going to be away from you for a while, but it's actually good. This condemnation that I deserve that fell on Christ was actually a good thing that happened. And simultaneously was the worst thing that ever happened in human history. The perfect, sinless, innocent son of God who had never done anything wrong suffered as though he himself had become sin itself. And in that terrible tragedy, the best thing that could ever happen to you has happened. And it's shown by the work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts. What does he come to do? He comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this is where perhaps this word convict might seem difficult to us because Jesus said the Holy Spirit is coming to convict the world. Well, I don't know if you know this, but you were a part of the world before you knew Christ. And that conviction, that convincing you, that opening the eyes of your sin, the reality of your sin, is still going on because we still have to deal with that sin. And he gives explanation that's so interesting. Concerning sin, that is concerning the conviction of sin, because they do not believe in me. What is the foundation of our sin? Ultimately not believing God. Adam and Eve were told by God, don't eat from the tree. The day you do, you will surely die. Satan comes in and says, I don't think so. They choose not to believe God. Our sin is rooted in a lack of faith. Anytime we choose something other than God's good way, it's showing that we lack faith in him because we do not believe Christ when he tells us what is right, when he tells us what is wrong. And so there's a judgment that comes with that. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, the Holy Spirit also comes to convince Christians that there is a greater hope, there is a greater home for us, not here on earth, but in the new heavens, the new earth, the home that Christ has gone to prepare a place for us in. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of believers to say, hey, look, you have to deal with this sin and you have to deal with this sin with the motivation that you have a greater home than the one that you're in right now. Because of course, sin flourishes where we live in a place where basically the rest of the world says everything's okay. But the Spirit comes in and says, no, it is worth it for you to battle this sin. And concerning judgment, because this is the fearful fate of all who do not put their faith in Christ. There is a judgment to come. And the wages of sin is, in fact, death. And so conviction does not come in to the believer's heart in order to condemn or destroy the believer, but to build them up and to call them back to Christ to put their hope not in the things of this world, but to put their hope in him alone. Adam and Eve's eyes were open in the garden. They heard the Lord walking in the garden and they hid themselves. 
But church, your Lord has come to live inside of you, permanently with you. The Holy Spirit knows your sin better than you do. And he brings conviction to your heart in order to reconcile you with God. When the Spirit brings up these matters of a lie that you told, of a way that you're living that doesn't reflect the new nature that you have, that, that perhaps you're, you're treating people not lovingly, perhaps you are, are, have some kind of addiction in your heart. I don't know, the sin is all over the place. It could be all sorts of things. But when the Spirit brings those things up, He does so in order to say, now come back. Stop running away. As Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, Christ has died as our substitute so that we can be covered with his blood, covered in the robes of repentance and faith, turning away from that sin, stopping our running from him and running to him instead. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden in chapter three, yet Christ has sent his spirit to live within you. You're not banished because of your sin. The Spirit lives with you to renew you and help you conquer that sin. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, but today, particularly thinking about this idea of letting our eyes be open to what sin really is, the actual sin that is indwelling us even today. True conviction strips away any hope in ourselves and throws us completely on the mercy of Christ. It's not to say, your eyes are open, now figure out a good way to live more like Christ told you to, for crying out loud, come on. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our sins so that we can say, I have no other hope but Christ alone. So one of my favorite quotes from Robert Murray McShane, whose Bible reading plan we're um, reading, he says this, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, not condemnation, and repose in his almighty arms. So if this sermon for you has been mostly, oh my goodness, I'm looking at my sin and boy, this is uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want to think about it. Maybe you're tuned out to that entirely. Take the time to look at your sin. But as McShane says, for every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. The goal of the Christian is not to wallow in self-pity and misery over our sin, but to realize it for what it is, to bring it before the Lord and trust him to deal with it at the cross. We take 10 looks at Christ because we look to him to deal with it, not ourselves. We trust him to deal with it. And we know that his mission was, in fact, to put our sin far from us. Romans 8, 1 again says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so as you think about the convicting work of the Spirit in your life, don't think that he comes to condemn, condemn or destroy you. We have to be different than Adam and Eve because we have a fuller revelation. We have a fuller sense that, that when, they were, when, when God um, killed a lamb for Adam and Eve and covered them in the skin of the lamb, we can see that and say we've been covered with Christ. We see the fullness, the real picture of what that means. And that rather than banishing us, he comes to meet us in the cool of the day still. 
he still chooses to abide with us. Even when you have sinned, he comes to meet you. He has no desire for you to be far from him. So what should we do? How do we live in light of this conviction? We need to continue to listen to the voice of the Spirit who convicts of sin, but also the end of that passage in John 16 says that he also um, leads us according to what Christ has taught us. He establishes us in that. He wants to establish us in the gospel. Next week, we're going to talk about confession and the actual act of, of saying, okay, I did it. That comes after conviction. We have to have this heart transformation first. We need to embrace that heart transformation day by day. We need to embrace conviction with confidence and humility as God's work of aligning our will to his. So this Lent season, our goal is indeed to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, to to be in line with what he's doing, what he's revealing, not running away from him, but running towards him and looking to Christ um, these uh, these seven weeks, uh, including Easter, uh, in order to better see what he's done for us and to bring him the glory that he deserves. So three things I'd call you to do today. Pray, encourage, and testify. Pray first off that the Lord would help you to see your sin more clearly and submit to the work of the Spirit in your heart to do away with it. Secondly, encourage. Is there someone you could trust about the conviction in your hearts to share that with them? Do you have a brother or sister in Christ that you could say, hey, there's this sin I need to deal with. I need your help with that. Um, I want to share with you how the Lord's been convicting me about my sin. And, and maybe you might need help seeing Christ on the cross because of that conviction. Don't think that anything that we talk about is meant to be done alone or, or, in, or completely in private. Uh, this is not to say that we're going to have a conviction Sunday where everybody comes up and tells everybody their deepest, darkest secrets. But perhaps there is a need for you to find another brother and sister, brother or sister in Christ to help you walk through this conviction. Lastly, testify. It's our theme, so we have to say something about it, right? Testify. Let your life show a sensitivity to sin that is not stuffy or obnoxious, but that it's sincere and joyful over the abounding grace in Christ you've received. That, that your con- the conviction of your heart is not one that makes you a stuffy or annoying Christian that says, like, oh, I've got to be away from everything in the world and I don't want anything to do with it. It's all- or, or you come in and you're just, you know what an obnoxious Christian is, right? We don't need to go into the details of that. But let this idea of conviction be something that is such in your heart that it, it shows the world that it is worthwhile to deal with our sin, to admit that we are part of the problem, and to run to Christ in sincerity and joy. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, this morning I'm going to take our prayer straight from the Valley of Vision prayer book. Just say it word for word here. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, or the exceeding wonder of grace. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.